Genesis 13 questions. Questions on Genesis 13. Yes, go ahead. Uh, can you expand a little bit on uh, how God can be an alien in his own land? So there will be alien soldiers <coughs> with me. Uh, how, uh, how is that? How can, God, how can God be an alien and a sojourner with his people? Leviticus 25, 23. Yes. How is God an alien in his own land? He's an alien in his own land because metaphorically or spiritually speaking, he intends for this to be a joint and temporary journey. The way that the current earth is, the way the current Canaan is, everything that he has in this world right now, specifically in Canaan, is a joint and temporary journey to heaven. That's why he's saying, you are strangers uh, or aliens and sojourners with me. Leviticus 25, 23. Okay, it's really just expressing that, that oneness. The oneness, yeah, the oneness of the journey, yes. It's like the Great Commission... Matthew eighteen twenty, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I am with you always. Next, in the back. In Genesis thirteen, there it deals with God's promise about the land of Canaan being given to Abraham and his offspring. And throughout the Old Testament, a lot of people take it as though the patriarchs uh, were only concerned about physical life, the things of this world. But then we read over in Hebrews chapter 11 where it talks about them looking for their heavenly home, uh, a city whose builder maker is God. So how, how do people, uh, false teachers or whatever you want to call them, that are proponents of the patriarchs only being about this life, how do they take Hebrews 11 there where it says Different. Okay, if we just learned, as we did, that the patriarchs were looking for a heavenly home and not an earthly home in Canaan as their ultimate goal, then, how, and it's clear in Hebrews 11 that they were looking for a city whose architect and builder is God, Hebrews 11.10, then how is it that false teachers or other interpreters could conclude that they were only seeking for physical things in the world. How do they conclude that? Well, there's various ways in which they do it. One is pure ignorance. Some people just don't know because they don't read the Bible, they don't know. And then you have to inform them, and if they're teachable, hopefully ignorance plus humility, that, that can be resolved, and hopefully that's what you'll encounter. But if you have ignorance plus arrogance, then there's no hope. Ignorance plus arrogance, there's no hope. But if you have ignorance plus humility, then just show Hebrews 11 and some other passages, such as the ones we covered. You can show them that these passages show a heavenly hope. But then, others, they have a method of interpretation that entirely excludes the New Testament. Or it makes the New Testament a secondary or tertiary uh, means of interpretation. They say the Old Testament should be interpreted without the aid of the New Testament. That's how they argue that if you just looked at the Old Testament, this is the way they present it. If you just looked at the Old Testament in its original context, if you look at it in its historical context, you would not conclude that they had a heavenly hope that they looked at the unseen and spiritual world. You would not conclude that. You would conclude that their only hope was in this world. And that's all that God expected of them. He only expected of them to have faith in this world to the best of their abilities based on the physical promises of God, because that's all they were, to the exclusion of the New Testament. They say if you just read the Old Testament, that's the way you would conclude it as though they are objective interpreters of the Old Testament. Because if you read the Old Testament in its context, 
in its original context, in its historical context, in its historical setting, you would have to conclude that their hope was eternal. Because they conveniently overlook verses such as Genesis 23, 4, or Genesis 47, 9, or 1 Chronicles 29, 15, or Psalm 39, 12. They conveniently overlook, or Psalm 119.54, your statutes are my songs in the house of my pilgrimage. God's words are his songs while he's on a pilgrimage. Now, he's not talking about a pilgrimage from northern uh, Dan going down to Jerusalem for the feast day. He's talking about an eternal hope he has. This world is his place of pilgrimage, and he's on his way to heaven. That's what he means in Psalm 119, and that's what these other patriarchs mean, Abraham, Jacob, David, that's what they meant. So, when they say historical context, just the Old Testament, well, if they read the Old Testament properly, they could not ever conclude they only had a physical hope. (coughs) Furthermore, when you bring the New Testament to bear on it, they'll say, okay, well, the apostles... They put a spiritual meaning to the physical promises. The apostles turned it and twisted it. Now, in the extreme case, some of the false interpreters will say it was a misinterpretation and a distortion and a twisting of the Old Testament to make it spiritual and eternal by the hands of the apostles. That's what they say. But a softer approach to that, they'll say, no, the apostles just added another layer of meaning. It had a physical meaning originally in the Old Testament, but the apostles added a spiritual layer of meaning, and now it had, the spiritual meaning is more important than the original physical meaning. That's how they say. But if you read Hebrews 11, 8 to uh, 16... If you read many other places in the New Testament, you just read it as it is, there is no hint whatsoever that the apostles added a spiritual meaning. In fact, they assert in the face of their opponents that you opponents, you have completely gotten it wrong. Why didn't you know? Why was it not obvious to you? Moses preached a spiritual meaning. David preached a spiritual meaning. And I'm preaching the spiritual meaning. So just as Moses expected you to repent and believe, David expected you to repent and believe, I'm telling you now, repent and believe in the gospel of Christ. It's a spiritual meaning in its original context. It has to be, it has to have that component to it. Uh, Can I give you one example of that last statement I made? Look at Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 Acts 2, two twenty-five. Acts 2, 25. For David says of him, Peter is preaching to the crowds. David says of him, I was always beholding the Lord in my presence, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad And my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will abide in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Pause there. Who is speaking to whom? (laughs) Ask yourself that question. Who is speaking to whom? That he will not undergo decay. You will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. My soul you will not abandon to Hades. Who is speaking to whom in this verse 29 says? The interpretation. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And so, because he was a prophet and knew, look at that, David knew, Not I'm reinterpreting him to know, but David knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants upon his throne. He looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, 
that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. Firstly, verse 29. Some of the Jews, just some of the Jews, believed that David in Psalm 16 was talking about himself. Psalm 16 is David talking about himself. But in 29 he says, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. He's saying, brethren, we can say that confidently. Let's go together and let's walk over there to the tomb of David and I'll prove to you and you know, after I show you with your own eyes, that David's tomb is right here till this day. And David, by this point, had been dead a thousand years. Right. David lived a thousand years before Christ and the apostles. So he was dead a thousand years. His tomb is with us to this day. You know it's his tomb. All of you come here. You frequent this area, this place. You know where it is. Everybody calls it David's tomb. Everybody knows it's David's tomb. He is there. So... Why is that an important point? Because if David was talking about himself not undergoing decay, well, he did undergo decay. He underwent decay, and his body was disintegrated right there in the grave, right? That was it. So if David was a true prophet, then he's not talking about himself, because if he was talking about himself as a true prophet then he, was a, uh, he contradicted himself. Right. There's something false, he says. A true prophet cannot say that which is false. So, 30. And so, because he was a prophet, don't let that statement be overlooked. He was a prophet. Because he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants upon his throne. He knew that. How did he know that? 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel 7. He knew it. He looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ. That's what David spoke of. He spoke of the coming of Christ, his resurrection. And resurrection assumes crucifixion, right? Crucifixion for our sins, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. Because he rose on the third day. No decay on the third day. Decay begins on the fourth day. Uh, John chapter 11, Lazarus. Remember, they warned Jesus, be careful, uh, there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. But he did not, Jesus did not suffer decay. So this was about Jesus. This is in the Old Testament. And the moment... David died. All they needed to wait was four days to know back in 1000 BC that all they needed to wait was four days if they had any confusion in their minds when David wrote Psalm 16. Was David talking about himself or was he talking about the Christ, the Messiah? All they had to do was wait four days. They would know. David wasn't talking about himself. He was talking about Christ. So the spiritual meaning. Right there. There's many examples like this. We have to use, uh, first, we have to be knowledgeable and not just say things because we've heard them. Don't repeat things just because you've heard them. Make sure that it is true in the Bible. Know what's in the Bible in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Don't come to a conclusion about the Old Testament that makes one part of the Old Testament contradict another part. Amen. Because there are many clear spiritual statements in the Old Testament. For example, Ecclesiastes 12.7, And the dust shall return to the ground from which it came, and the Spirit will return to God who gave it. Isn't that spiritual? It's physical and spiritual, is it not? Teaching us that we have a body that goes to the ground and decays and becomes dust, and then... Our spirit goes to God. There's an immaterial spiritual part to us. Right there in in the Old Testament, right in the middle of the Old Testament. It says it. So, the Old Testament, understand it and don't let it contradict itself. And then also, the apostles are the sure interpreters of the Old Testament. 
Don't doubt their interpretation. Don't undermine their interpretation. They are the, the accurate interpreters of the Old Testament. No ifs, ands, or buts. If the apostles say this is the meaning of it, then that's the meaning of a passage they quote. But not everyone looks at it this way. That's why false interpretations come about. And then fault, and why are false interpretations dangerous? Because if David didn't believe in Christ and Moses didn't believe in Christ in the spiritual sense, then their way of salvation is different than our way of salvation. Their means of salvation, the death of Christ, was only for those people from the day of Pentecost until the rapture. If the death of Christ only is for those between the from the day of Pentecost to the rapture, Acts chapter two to First Thessalonians four, if that's the only, or if those people are the only beneficiaries of the death of Jesus, then there's another way of salvation in the future after the rapture, and there was a different way of salvation before Pentecost, because the main source of salvation is Christ. And if the main source is different, then there's a different salvation. That's how important this issue is. Okay, there was someone else over here. Yes. I just want to make a comment. Each, each scripture you gave was about the seed, because my Bible has a little star out beside it, which denotes the, the future of Christ. Uh -huh. Then you get in the New Testament, the star is darkened, that it has already taken place. But it all refers to Jesus Christ. Yeah. You know, and so many people don't understand. The seed is not talking about then, it's talking about all the way up to Christ. Because that's who it's talking about. Okay. You know? Okay, well you're saying then, just for the sake of the recording, right. you're, you're saying that your Bible indicates, in a way, what the Old Testament seed is, and then there's a corollary in the New Testament so there's the prophecy, and then there is the fulfillment in the New Testament. Right. Now, some English Bibles have some helps like that for the reader to see the connections more clearly. The English editors and publishers of our Bibles, some, they have come up with one way or another to help us make these connections. The prophecy and the fulfillment. Old Testament prophecy, New Testament fulfillment. But there is a problem with some translations that downplay and not even mention an Old Testament passage that is messianic, but they don't indicate in any helpful way that it is messianic. And so the reader, he has to work harder to figure out that a passage is messianic. And, and why do some translations do that? I think they do it because the translators of those Old Testament books they don't believe in what I just said in terms of the correct way to understand the Old Testament. They think the Old Testament, if you just read it plainly, the Old Testament says hardly anything, if anything, about Christ. That's the way a lot of Old Testament professors are that way and translators of the Bible, that's what they believe. That's why some of our English Bibles, editions of the English translations, don't give us any clarity, additional helps to understand this or that passage as being a Christological Messianic passage. So be aware. Be aware and read carefully. Yeah. And compare notes. Read and read and read, study, and compare one passage of the Bible to another passage. How, uh, with your experience in uh, Christian academia, how common is that interpretation that you gave, the true one, which is that the Old Testament doesn't contradict, it's spiritual, the New Testament is the best interpreter of the Old Testament. Is that the common belief or is that uncommon within the seminaries, the Bible colleges that you've been a part of? Okay. Um, how common in academia, Christian academia, is this method of interpretation. Well, um, in one seminary, uh, when I was a professor there, there were about five of us in Old Testament and five of us in New Testament in terms of specialties, uh, 
teach professors of each of those subjects. So in that environment, um, two of us in Old Testament and only one in New Testament believed in direct prophecy and fulfillment. So that would mean three out of ten of us believed in what I just said as the correct method of interpretation. The other seven uh, from Old Testament department and the New Testament department, they believed in this layered interpretation or the original context did not mean Christ, but the apostles made it mean Christ. So seven out of ten had a false method of interpretation. And I would say that's common. It's very common. It's usually the minority that interprets the Bible the way I just did. Yes? Um, In that same vein, uh, you're uh, discussing it. Can Can you go over how the seed is used uh, in the Old Testament uh, that you have Paul specifically picking up the idea that seed is singular, points to Christ. Is there places in the Old Testament where that idea that seed is most certainly plural and referring to uh, those physical descendants as well? And How would you, and I guess my background for this is is, is this John Reisinger, he wrote the famous book, Abraham Forsyth's book, uh, which was, is, is different uh, than perhaps the view that, that, that you hold. But can you describe for us how the Bible uses the term seed, uh, and then uh, obviously bringing it to culmination in, in, in singular seed Christ? Okay, how does the Bible use the word seed, especially the Old Testament? Um, Well, I refer you back to what I just said in the previous uh, hour. Those passages are examples of it. But let me give uh, a a premise, and then we'll go to examples. The premise is, it depends on the context. The context will tell you how it is meant. And you have to read the context clearly. So, a physical example of seed being in the plural, is in Genesis 15. Genesis 15, 15, 5. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Now, English, my translation has descendants in the plural. The Hebrew word is a singular, collective singular noun. It's the word seed. It's not a plural noun, seeds, but a singular noun, seed. But a collective singular noun, it's grammatically singular, but conceptually or semantically plural. Okay? Yes, like the word people. In English, the word people, it's singular grammatically, right? It's not E, it's not with an S, it's just people. And people is grammatically singular, but semantically it's plural. We're talking about more than one. It could be two or three or 10,000 or a million. It, it depends on the context. That's the way the word seed is in Genesis 15, 5. But then, then we have to ask, did he mean it in a singular sense or not? And why does my translation, Genesis 15, 5, have it in the plural? I think it has it in the plural because of what follows. 6 says, 15, 6, Then he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. And he said, O Lord God, how may I know that I shall possess it? And then there is the deep sleep and the vision he has with the animals and God passing through the animals. Then verse 13, and God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants, that's our word seed, your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. And as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, you shall be buried at a good old age. 
Then in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. His physical descendants will be enslaved. Then they will be delivered from that slavery, and they will return to the land of Canaan. And the reason is the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. But when they do return, notice uh, verse 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants' seed, I, will I have given this land, where? From the river of Egypt, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. And then who possesses this territory right now? He says, The Kenite, and the Kenizzite, and the Kadmonite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Rephaim, and the Amorite, and the Canaanite, and the Girgashite, and the Jebusite. So, he's talking... Right here, it's clearly he's meaning it in a physical way. Now, the physical is preparatory to the spiritual, so I'm not saying there are no spiritual implications here, but this is clearly indicating that our translation of seed should be plural and that the beneficiaries of this immediately is going to be Abraham's physical descendants in a physical land. Does that help with one? Okay. It does. Okay. Um, I guess, uh, I, I, I hate to say this, but it's, it's almost as if Paul arbitrarily says, well, in this case, I'm going to take it as singular unit, this is Christ. And then just a few verses earlier, he talks about the number of people, the total number of descendants coming uh, from Abraham, who are by faith, and saying that, that you know, even in the same chapter of Galatians 3. Okay. So... Uh, I understand that we want to make sure we use the context of the Old Testament to say, you know, when is it singular and when is it plural? And Paul seems to take both of these views even within the same chapter. Okay. So I guess I, 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 I don't always know, <coughs> just reading the Old Testament by itself, whether to take it as singular or plural. Um, okay. I looked at Galatians 3, and, and Paul seems to make that distinction, but I, I certainly couldn't do it okay. myself. Okay, Lord, let's let's do it. And I, of course, it's it's impossible to remove what Paul says from our mind. Okay, but let's just try to be as objective as possible and go to Genesis twelve. Genesis twelve, twelve, verse three. It's the last clause of verse three, and in you. All the families of the earth shall be blessed. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Let us attempt to interpret this physically. Will it work? It can't work. It can't work. Correct? It cannot work physically because all the families of the earth, and let alone nuclear family. Right, <laughs> let alone nuclear family, but all the families of the earth, even if we're talking about, uh, let's say, uh, relatives and clans and tribes, all the tribes of the earth, let's say, all the tribes of the earth shall be blessed in Abraham. Really? What does that mean? Does it mean that they all will live in the land of Canaan? No. no. Does it mean that just as Abraham had a lot of silver and gold and much livestock, all the families of the earth will also, <coughs> in the land of Canaan, or even in their own countries, have lots of silver and gold and livestock. They'll be blessed just like Abraham. In you, all the families. It cannot meet, uh, uh, be a physical meaning, right? right? Absolutely not. So, that's why Paul quotes it in Galatians 3, 6-9, to and he says, so then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. Right. After quoting this verse, he says, so then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. It has to be a spiritual interpretation. Okay, then, as I said in the previous hour, what about Genesis chapter 22? Genesis chapter... 22, 22 and 18, verse 18. And in your seed 
All the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Okay, in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. In 12.3 he said, in you. But here he says, in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. How could it be, is it true that in all of Abraham's physical descendants, plural, seed, in your seeds, all the nations will be blessed? No, it doesn't happen that way. It never happened that way, right? Did all of Abraham's, or most, or the majority of Abraham's physical descendants live the way Abraham lived, and, be, and were they a blessing to all the nations of the earth? No, it never happened. So that eliminates this seed being physically plural to be uh, spiritually plural blessing to the rest of the world. It's impossible. It, did not, it, did not, it never happened. And since it never happened, we can safely conclude God did not intend for it to happen. Okay? Then in your seed, then now we have to go to the singular. If it's not the physical, then we have to go to the singular seed who will be the blessing of the nations. Right. And then who will that be? Christ Jesus. It has to be Christ Jesus. And that's why Paul quotes and says, and when he says unto your seed, he does not say unto seeds as referring to many, but he says unto your seed as referring to Christ. Galatians 3.16. This is not Paul adding anything. Coalescing all of these into a single chapter. Exactly. Saying, he's just repeating what was what exactly. Was there, exactly. He's identifying. Exactly. Paul is not adding a layer of meaning. He is coalescing. He is uh, compiling all of the evidence to prove his case. That's what he's doing. Now, just let's say, let's say Paul was a wild and crazy and <laughs> fanatical interpreter as the detractors think of him. Yeah. In what way would he be able to convince with sobriety? Would he be able to convince those who did know the Old Testament? Would he be able to convince people with his fanaticism when they were reading the Old Testament, they knew the facts of the Old Testament? And if they didn't know, they would have to double check and, and make sure, like the Bereans did. Remember, the Bereans were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. And also, by the way, remember, it, the Bereans, if I read the passage correctly, the Bereans, at the time, they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. It doesn't necessarily mean that they were believers at the time. So that means when they hear Paul, and they hear him the first time, and they say, well, I haven't heard that before. Or is, it, is that really what that passage says that you quoted, Paul? Right. What are they doing? They're receiving it, eager to learn, but then they double check. And they go find it in the Bible. And then they make sure that what Paul said is actually there in the Bible. And then once they make sure that it's actually there, they believe it. But if Paul, if Paul was a crazy man with his interpretations, then all the Bereans would have to do is say, in the context... How can you say that, Paul? It's not even there. Then they would object and walk away or throw stones at him and walk away, right? That's what they would do, but they didn't do that because they had enough knowledge and access and, and common sense and sobriety in their approach to the Bible that they heard it, they double-checked it, and then they believed it. Throughout the New Testament, in, with both Jesus and the apostles, is they never they never explain or preface their sermon to the people with this is something new and novel. They just assume it is written out that this is the obvious reading of the passage. Yes, yes. They never they they never preface their comments by saying it's a new interpretation or a reinterpretation or anything like that. They never hint at that. They just say. The scripture says, it is written. Have you not heard? As Jesus says, have you not heard? Have you not read? It's obvious. It's right there. 
and they just quote it and they assert the true interpretation and then it's on the laps of the, the hearers whether they're going to receive it and keep it on their lap, embrace it, or throw it away. How can they do that if they are misinterpreting the Old Testament? They can't do that. Next question. So all this assumes a continuity between the Old Testament and New, between every part of the Old Testament and between the Old Testament and the New Testament. That Correct. Everything harmonizes and it has a divine origin. Yes. That's the problem. Yeah. Commonly is people want to make the Bible a human book instead of a divine book. Right? Yes. People want to make the Bible a human book rather than a divine book. They don't come to the Bible with the correct understanding of what the Bible actually is. Exactly. Actually, yesterday, um, we, uh, me, uh, I and my wife, we, we renewed friendship with a, uh, a couple that we have known since 1999, and we haven't seen them in 15 years. They moved to Texas, and they were passing through our area. They, they stayed with us, and he's a professor of the Old Testament. And he, he, he wrote something recently, and I objected to it. I presented it to him and to raise my objections, and he anticipated that I would object to it. <laughs> so there was no surprise. Um, so when he did, um, he said, which I already knew, but he said, he said, Ish, uh, I asked him, do you believe that the words of the prophets and the apostles are from the Holy Spirit of God? And he kind of hesitated, and I said, I mean it like Second Peter chapter 1, 20 to 21. I quoted it and then said, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. For no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Do you believe that? And he said, yes. I said, you do? You believe that whatever they said was accurate, harmonious, no contradiction, reliable? And he said, yes. I said, but then you also just said you believe that Moses didn't write the whole law. And you used the word redactor. A redactor is an editor, an anonymous, religious, fanatic, or a religious... Um, uh, wise man who's got a way of writing and expressing himself. We don't know their names, and there's many of them. That's what a redactor is in academic and Old Testament scholarship. That's what a redactor is. So he, he said he believed in redaction, redactions of this part of Exodus and this part of Deuteronomy and so on. He already said that. That was a part of our earlier discussion. So I said, Bruce, I told you his name. Uh, you, can check him, you can check him out, Bruce Wells. He wrote an article recently on the Ten Commandments. So I said, Bruce, you believe in redactors. You believe in redactors. You cannot believe in redactors and contradictions and also believe in the Holy Spirit. The Holy right. Spirit does not contradict himself. Amen. Right. So then he says, well, there's two ways to understand the Bible. There is the Holy Spirit who wrote the Bible, but there's also these men who wrote the Bible, and he says that he believes it's his job to understand what the men wrote and what they meant, not the Holy Spirit. That's what he said. That's double talk. He, he, that's double talk. Yes, that's what he said. And I said, you cannot do that, and you cannot say you believe that the Bible is written by the Holy Spirit, because when you say you believe that, then... Those words have a historical definition, a historical meaning. In the history of interpretation, in theology, however you want to say, they have a meaning, but when you say you believe the Holy Spirit wrote it, you don't believe it in the traditional way in which that phrase is meant. So you cannot say the Holy Spirit wrote it, because you really don't believe it. You believe men wrote it, and anonymous redactors wrote it, not even Moses. So this is what I'm, uh, to follow up on your question, you have to approach the Bible in the correct way. 
by the way. And then he said, well, I, I anticipated it. I said, now, you, I, I know you're going to say you come to it objectively. And I, I don't come. I come, with it. I come to the Bible with the bias. But we all come to the Bible with the bias. I come with the bias or the stance that it is inspired of God. But you come not believing that. Though you say you believe it, you don't believe. No, well, I just think your interpretation is reasonable. That was his word. Your interpretation is reasonable and, and possible, very possible. I just, I just don't think that it has to be taken that way. So I take it this other way, is what he said. So mine is reasonable, but listen. I, I, I wish you could have been there. Uh, you all could have been there and watched this happen. Because I said... You don't really believe it's reasonable. You, you think I'm wacky and crazy. You think I'm an ignoramus. That's what you really think. Because I know the way people think who, interpret the, uh, who disagree with this way of interpreting the Bible. I've seen it. I've read it. I've heard it many times. That's what you really think. You think I'm primitive and backward. I'm unsophisticated. I haven't read all the books. I don't know what I'm talking about. But you do know what you're talking about. That's really what you believe. So don't flatter me and say, I'm reasonable, I know the issues, and you respect my opinion. Don't say that. It's good, bro. So, back to the comment. It is the problem. What is the Bible? It is, is it the very words of God? And if it is, we must make sense of it harmoniously. We cannot allow one part to contradict another part. We have to interpret it accurately. That's the duty of a minister, 2 Timothy 2.15. But present yourselves to God. Uh, do not be ashamed, but present yourselves to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. That's what we're supposed to do. Brother, I'm not saying that this is a case with your friend, but wouldn't those types of negligent handling of the Word of God be an evidence or as the scripture says a token of perdition uh, the evidence is true reprobates yes yes isn't it an evidence of perdition or true reprobates yes, yes it is because uh, I, I mentioned I said to him if one has the Holy Spirit he will not interpret the way you are interpreting. Right. He will not do that. He will not interpret the way you are interpreting. Um, you say, friend, you say that your interpretation is very plausible. It makes sense to you. But I say it doesn't make sense. It's implausible. And when I read the Bible, I read it a different way, and I can make sense of it in the way that you reject but I don't. It's obvious to me what it's saying. You don't take it that way. So your interpretation cannot square with the Holy Spirit of God. How can the Holy Spirit make one part of the Bible contradict another part of the Bible? It can't happen. It can't happen. It doesn't. It's an offense against the Lord. It's an right? offense, yes. No doubt. Yes, it's an offense. It robs him of his glory, the glory of of the, the beauty and the perfection of the scriptures. I, I don't see how men can do that with a clear conscience and without being pricked in their hearts Yes. That wickedness. Yes. 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 Where, where would this gentleman have gone wrong? What, what generated or started this wrong thinking, I'm going to call it, that would... Got, gotten him so far off into the left field. And what is the principle that is working there? Yes, okay, what caused him to go astray? Yeah. What caused him to go astray? Well, he studied at uh, an independent uh, college, an uh, independent Christian college, Pensacola Christian College in Florida. He studied there. His upbringing was Christian and Baptist and independent uh, Baptist in a kind of a fundamentalist conservative environment, um, KJV only kind of environment. And then he w went to the seminary, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, where I met him briefly. Um, and when he went there, 
by that point, his professors and the books, they are the ones who poison the well. They poison the well. And when they, po they poison the well with the books that they required him to read and all of the issues that he was never um, abreast of before, he encountered them and he said, well, I never looked at it that way. And after all, it's in a book, and after all, it's a scholar, and after all, they, they pointed out things that, yeah, how, how do I resolve that? How can I resolve that? And he was unable to resolve it on his own or with the help of others. And so he continued in that path. And then when I got to know him well in the Ph.D. program at another place, um, that's, that's when things were clinched, I think. By that point, I think... He had read enough that he approached me about a year after um, we went. To, uh, I went to that university. He approached me about a year later and said that um, he was embarrassed to bring this up, but he doesn't believe that the Bible is inerrant. He told me that, and and yet, even though he knew I did, we didn't talk a lot about it. Well, the effects of higher learning. The effects of higher learning, yes. It's higher in terms of years, and it's higher in terms of specificity and sophistication, but it is lower spiritually. No doubt. It is base, it's lower, and it's destructive. Because I, I'm, I'm, I tell you, and I'm not making this up, check this out, all of you can check this out. Woodrow Wilson... Woodrow Wilson actually said publicly that the creation of the universities, the state-funded universities, tax-funded universities, has as its purpose to put a wedge between sons and their fathers. And also, by implication, the religious or the Christians from the irreligious and the communists, the Marxists, socialists. That's the purpose of the tax-funded universities. He said that. Now, I'm summarizing him, but just look at, uh, check it out. That's what Woodrow Wilson said. That's the purpose of them. So, I've been saying, once I experienced all of this myself, I've been saying, the purpose of university, the bachelor's at university is to make you an unbeliever. And if you don't become an unbeliever in a, the master's program, by then it'll happen. And especially, you will be a trained unbeliever to instruct other people once you have a PhD. Unless you know what the issues are, and unless you have true faith in Christ, in the Word of Christ, and unless you have a stance of offense at times, not just defense, but offense at times, you'll succumb to it, and you'll be just like one of them. Fortunately, in my case... It did not happen because I had those things I just mentioned. Actually, what it does, it nullifies faith. It nullifies faith. It nullifies true faith because they actually have blind faith. They have blind faith in anonymous redactors. Isn't that stupid? Blind yeah. faith in an anonymous redactor. And that's just one. Numerous anonymous redactors of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Matthew did not write Matthew. Mark did not write Mark. Luke did not write Luke. John did not write John. Paul did not write certain letters of the New Testament. Paul did not write certain letters, such as Second um, Thessalonians or First Thessalonians. There are some scholars, liberal scholars of the New Testament, who say Paul did not write those letters. And Peter did not write Second Peter. And not even First Peter, but certainly not Second Peter. So on. That's what they say. I can't even imagine the wrath that's going to come upon such. No doubt. That really, they accuse God of error. The, the, the verse that's just been going through my mind as we've been discussing it, you've been discussing it, is Psalm 145, 17. 
The Lord is righteous in all his ways and holy in all his works. That includes especially his revelation to us. Yes. What, what great fearful judgment awaits these so-called scholars. Yes. What fearful judgment awaits. Yes, you, you quoted Psalm 145, 17. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his deeds. And that would apply especially to his written revelation. Sure. Especially to that. And also James 3, 1. Let many of you, my brethren, not become teachers, for as such we shall incur a stricter judgment. Scary. Yes, scary. Anyone else? Yes. Uh, in Revelation 21.8, which was read earlier, it mentions that the cowardly will be thrown into the lake of fire. And would a false teacher be like that? Yes. Because he's not speaking of the true Jesus and receiving the consequences of preaching the true Christ Jesus. And if he's pre not preaching the true Christ Jesus and receiving the consequences of that, that is, people will mock you and ridicule you and if they do that with the true Jesus, and he avoids ridicule, he avoids turning away from sin, he avoids whatever for preaching a false Christ, then yes, he's cowardly. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we, we pray that you will give us more of your grace and grant us boldness to preach and teach your word. Grant us boldness to live according to your word. May we not be distracted and demoralized by the people around us, what they say, what they do. Help us to live for you and your kingdom, to live a godly life, to reject sin, to pray for one another, to pray for our families, and to build up our own families and teach them the word. Help us, Lord, as men to be godly in, all, in everything that we do. Always. In Christ's name, amen.